the unspoken word with Igor Goldkind. The unspoken word is seldom silent. More often the unspoken sounds out louder than what is said. This first podcast of a series consists of poetry, music, and speculative realisms relevant to our current state of turbulent circumstance and our collective sense of being. Poetry, music, art surrounding the meanings we give existence. I want to cover a variety of topics, including how trying to be spiritual is immaterial, uh, hypogenic states between wakefulness and sleep, and how the personal is always political. Oh, and why America is such a fundamentally racist and violent place to live. But today my subject is broader. It's about the premeditated cognitive dissonance and collective cognitive fragmentation of our time. I'll explain what that means in a minute. Bear with me, this is my first ever podcast, and I... I'm in a room by myself, but I'm pretending that my listeners are with me, and I'm hoping that you're with me and will stay with me. I have things to say that concern you, concern me, concern us. And now really is the time to articulate those emotions, those anxieties, those those preoccupations that that really define our day-to-day life in terms of what we pay attention to. To understand the idea of premeditated cognitive dissonance and what that means, cognitive dissonance is entertaining two contradictory beliefs at the same time. It's called dissonance because it's uncomfortable. The best example I can give of this is smoking. I am an occasional smoker and I know it's bad for me. So I have the idea of smoking or the belief that smoking makes me feel good, relaxes me, it de-stresses and uh, meditates me in a way. And at the same time, I have the idea that it's terrible and will kill me. And yet my behavior sustains both of those two contradictory ideas, and it does make me uncomfortable. I do not rest easy with it. But that's just an example, and that's my personal problem. Hey, what problems aren't personal? The point is that dissonance, or that creation of sustaining of contradictory ideas is something that we encounter naturally in our our day-to-day lives and in trying to resolve the choices we make in our lives and what the right thing to do is. But my argument is that we exist now in a society in a state of perpetuated cognitive dissidence perpetuated, intended cognitive dissonance as a means of better manipulating and controlling the public. And I'll unpack that a little bit. But before we go into that, I, I wanted to try to define what attention is. Because each of us is paying attention. And right now you're paying attention to my voice. What you are doing is fundamental to who you are. Because who you are is what you're paying attention to. You are not the thing or the voice that you're paying attention to. But you are there in the attention you pay it. 
Attention is the ability to actively process information in your environment while tuning out other details. Attention is limited in terms of both capacity and duration, so it, it's important to have ways to effectively manage the attentional resources we have available in order to make sense of the world. There are so many choices to pay attention to. But too many choices is no choice at all due to cognitive dissonance. Attention is the ability to actively process specific information in the environment while tuning out other details. Attention is limited in terms of both capacity and duration, so it is important for us to have ways to effectively manage these resources. William James, in The Principles of Psychology, wrote that attention is the taking possession by the mind in clear and vivid form of one out of what may seem several simultaneous possible objects or trains of thought. It implies withdrawal from some things in order to deal effect more effectively with others. Thus, attention is the building block of discernment, the ability to focus on certain stimuli that we choose. It's not just about centering our focus on one particular thing. It also involves ignoring a great deal of competing information and stimuli. Attention allows you to tune out information, sensations, and perceptions in order to tune in to the moment and focus of your awareness. Not only does our attentional system allow us to focus on something specific, but it also affects our perception of the stimuli surrounding us. Attention is a basic component of our biolo biology, present even at birth. Our orienting reflexes help us to determine which events in our environment need to be attended to, a, a process that aids in our ability to survive. Newborn babies attend to environmental stimuli such as loud noises, a touch against the cheek triggers the rutting reflex, causing the infant to turn his or her head to nurse on a teat and receive nourishment. These orienting reflexes continue to benefit us throughout our lives because attention plays a critical role in almost every area of our life, including school, work, relationship. It's what allows people to focus on information in order to create memories. It also allows people to avoid distractions so they can focus on and complete specific tasks. Since attention is a limited resource, we have limited attention, we have to be selective about what we decide to focus on. Not only must we focus our attention on specific things in our environment, but we have to consciously filter out an enormous number of other things. Selective attention involves being able to choose and selectively attend to certain stimuli while at the same time tuning others out. This type of attention requires you to be able to tune out extraneous external st stimuli, but also internal distractions, such as thoughts and emotions, in order to stay selectively attuned to the tasks that we're doing, whether it's reading a book or walking our dog, or whatever it is that we are doing. But there has been a dissonance of our attention. And one form of that dissonance, and I'll get to why it's intentional, by the way, and who's intending it, is the illusion that we have limitless attention and that we can actually pay attention to many things at once. This is what people refer to when they say they practice multitasking. Multitasking is a popular term, especially in the employment sphere. And also, I'm sure you've heard the old coinage, you know, women are naturally better multitaskers because they can do many things at once better than men can, some say. interviewed an enormous number of people about their, their 
attention habits, their focus habits, their work habits, and discovered that most people believe that they can do several things at once, paying attention to several channels at once, and accomplish each as effectively as if they were only focused on that. This is a common myth that everyone believes, that you can actually do many things at the same time as well as you can do one. It's an illusion. It's a self-deception. And inevitably, it's a deception which devalues and disempowers the ability to do any one of those multiple tasks that you, can, you believe you can do at the same time. The reason I raise it is because multitasking is a lie that is perpetrated by the working environment. Those who are piled with work are told to multitask. Why can't you just multitask? Why can't you do all those things at once and thus produce more for me as your employer than just doing one thing at a time? More and faster. That's the subtext of multitasking. We don't need you to be productive in your sense. We need you to meet certain measures. And that means delivering results the way we want you to, and as many results as quickly as you can. That is the nature of the workplace right now. And that's why everyone is exhausted. And that's why the idea of taking on two or more jobs to pay the bills is, is considered a normal thing to do. It's not something that people resign themselves to as a necessity in order to pay the mounting bills that we're all facing, but that somehow it's a lacking in ourselves that we're not able to work three jobs, be with our children, be with our partners, and be a healthy individual at the same time. This is somehow this has somehow been thrown back at us as a, as a failing. And it's not. It's a lie. We haven't failed anything. To be productive is to produce something worthwhile. Not a lot of little things that aren't worth much. And yet the workplace that we're in, the work society that we're in, the capitalist consumerist mechanism that we're all caught up in requires a mediocrity of our output and a high quantity and speed of our output. And this creates dissonance, cognitive dissonance. like multitasking is not haphazard. In fact, it's intentional and it's premeditated. The reason, the, the reason for this premeditation, it's, that sounds very sinister, like there's a, 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 a deep corporate state doing this, um, and there is, um, but the motive, the motivation is, in terms of disseminating cognitive dissonance in the public, is because when we feel discomfort, we seek to resolve that discomfort. And in our society, that is usually through buying something. I'm sure that you've had that experience of having some discomfort or something go wrong or something not happening and, and making you feel bad. And, you know, the answer is you go to the shopping mall. I'm going to go, I'm going to treat myself to shop. I'm going to reward myself for my discomfort by buying something. And uh, that does work uh, for about 
a minute or two until you, after you've bought it and taken it home and realized you don't have enough room for it. So it's got to go into your storage. But the point is, the purchase is what keeps our economy going. We live in a capitalist, a global capitalist uh, environment, economic environment. I'm not telling you anything new there. But the nature of our capitalist environment is that it's based on the engine of consumption. That's what distinguishes modern capitalism from, say, the Henry Ford era of capitalism, you know, the pre-World War II, post-World War II, the engine that made America great was that massive production, the ability to harness factories and personnel and people to start producing first World War II bombs and weapons so that the war could be fought. But once those factories were built and once that economic mechanism was put into place, it didn't just fade away. They didn't shut down everything after the war, after, the, uh, after victory was declared. Instead, those same, that same industry, that same industrial energy was ramped up and created what is often referred to as the Eisenhower years of prosperity, the 50s, the, the 50s and 60s, which are so uh, nostalgized by um, the current right, you know, the good old days, the America that Trump was talking about when he was saying, make America great again, he was talking about the 50s the 1950s. And that was the era in America while, World War, while Europe tried to catch up, you know, to reconstruct itself after such devastation. America didn't experience the devastation uh, that Europe did, that most of the West did. So it just switched. It switched from bombs to Cokes, to cars, to uh, TV dinners. And that production was at first incredibly wealth-creating because suddenly middle-class and working-class people suddenly had access to these incredible luxury of choices. Henry Ford's real genius was not the invention of the conveyor belt or the assembly line. Henry Ford's real genius was in producing automobiles on a mass level that could be cheap enough that could be afforded by the very workers he employed. That was the old-fashioned engine of capitalism. We create industries that employ more people and we pay those people we employ so they can afford the products that they're producing. And that was a self-fulfilling not prophecy, uh, 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 a, a self-fulfilling machine. What happened, of course, was that the, the, the fruit of that production became the wealth of those who owned the factories and the businesses. And as is usual with wealth, uh, it's never enough. So what we found was an economic model that has expanded globally based on mass consumption. The model doesn't work unless people keep buying things. You've got to buy stuff to keep our economy healthy. In fact, there was a time during one of the many recessions we went through in which the president at the time, I don't even remember who it was, if it was Reagan or Carter, who said, hey, you want to help America? Go out and buy something. Stimulus checks are meant to stimulate the economy, not its citizens, not us citizens, the economy. How? By giving us money in our pocket, which is really our money because it comes from our taxes, right? Giving us money in our pocket so we can go out and buy something as a means of fulfillment. And this is where cognitive dissonance comes in. Because our ability to discern, to pay attention and focus on what we need to survive, what we need to be happy, what we need to be fulfilled, is more limited than the capitalist demand for consumption. So here is the overall, the meta-dissonance is between healthy citizens, healthy people who are trying to, who are working to fulfill their needs, 
existing in a system that can only survive if its members, if its, if its, if its people, buy more than they need, consume more than we need. And that is the basis of modern capitalist consumerism, which, yes, did begin in America with American corporations, but, you know, corp corporations may be people, but they've got no passports. They exist everywhere. Every major corporation uh, in the world, uh, you know, may have originated in America, but is a global enterprise. Google is global. Amazon is global. That's why it's interesting if you ever as I have, if you ever try to deal with, say, Amazon UK as opposed to Amazon US, those two companies, those two branches of the same company don't actually speak to each other. They can't communicate with each other. So if you find that uh, it's all to the advantage of the, again, the economic structure that these corporations are allowed to expand globally, and yet they're only accountable locally. That's part of the, uh, the cheat. Cognitive dissonance is intentional. We are made to feel uncomfortable with our lives on purpose so that we buy solutions to our discomfort and we keep buying solutions to our discomfort. We are lied to about what will make us happy. One of, the, one of the subjects, one of the feelings that many people I know have is, is about relationships, about finding a partner, finding companionship. And the, look, it, it's always been that way. You know? Shakespeare would have had nothing to write about if it wasn't about that type of dissonance. However, what capitalism does, what consumerist capitalism does, is that it provides false expectations and false lying solutions. It provides bogus solutions with, to raise false expectations. That's how it keeps people buying things. And so the dissonance that we experience now in terms of, 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 of relationships is that we have an industry of dating apps and online services and all sorts of um, strange, you know, brokerages in which uh, for a certain sum of money, you are sold the promise that you will meet the person that you are destined to meet. Ask yourself, of the significant people in your life right now, be it your partner, be it your married partner, be it your teacher, be it your friends, be it whomever. How many people of the most significant people in your life did you intend to meet? Did you go out to meet? And I, I don't mean seeing somebody across the frozen food counter or whatever, and then deciding that you were going to meet them. But somebody you, you specifically went out and was paired with, or filled out a questionnaire and matched. Okay? If you're like me, relatively few. The vast majority of the significant people in my life, I have met by pure chance. Call it chance, call it fate, call it what you will. The point is there was no one contriving my expectation or my connection with another. I met my ex-wife completely by chance. Um, most of my friends in my life I have encountered and there's been sometimes um, a reason to connect. Other times not at that time, but at a later date, a connection. So the contrivance of the dating application, uh, wh whichever it is, or the dating service, as an actual viable solution is false. You're not going to find the significant person in your life online. 
you might meet somebody online that later becomes your significant person, but not by looking for them. Significance is earned. Significance is what happens over time when value has an, a chance to emerge. And that can never be contrived. It can only happen or not happen where it will. An example of dissonance, cognitive dissonance. I think that there is um, a crisis of cognitive dissonance. And the example I gave is just one illustration of a general pattern that I have detected certainly over the past 40 years. And I say this in terms of, in personal terms, I had, I, I'm lucky in that um, although I grew up in the United States, I left in my early 20s and lived in about seven different, half a dozen countries, lived and worked. I met my wife in England, fell in love and uh, lived there for over 20 years. And uh, I have a daughter who's in college. Um, I also had a house in France. I worked in Italy for a year and I traveled extensively through Spain and spent some time in Barcelona. So I, I've lived in different places and I've noticed the different, not the differences, the similarities that shine through in different cultures. I mean, generally, everyone is concerned with the same things. I mean, it's, it's love, work, food, shelter, but different cultures have different approaches and different priorities in, in the ways of achieving the realization of those needs. And that's what's interesting, because when you contrast between cultures, you can see between them. You can see what's behind every approach. I mention this not to brag, and uh, you know, um, that, that just happens to be my, you know, my particular path. However, I am lucky and fortunate that when I had to return to my native land some five years ago, I had been away like Rip Van Winkle. So I noticed like a bird flying in for a landing. I immediately noticed the differences between what I remembered and always imagined America to be, specifically California, and what it had become. And it wasn't, it took, it took me actually about a year of living back in my own country to really begin to detect the stark contrasts. And to be specific, the main contrast I'm, and the reason for starting this series of podcasts is that I believe that there has been a deliberate cognitive decay of the American mindset. I think that our critical faculties have been dismantled intentionally. I think that the last five years of that guy is evidence that the American mindset was disadvantaged and intentionally deconstructed and dissonated and, and, yes, deconstructed so that people would be more gullible and open to the consumer capitalist agenda. I think this is why people believe lies. I think that QAnon is a significant phenomena culturally and biologically because it is lots of people, millions of people, who have turned their back on the rational, who for whatever reason they've been sold, no longer trust authority, scientific authority, or expertise. The QAnon movement is an anti-cognitive movement. It doesn't work if you're thinking. 
you have to stop thinking to believe the kinds of things that QAnon purports. And the fact that there are millions of Americans, in fact, half of the registered Republicans still believe the last election was stolen, to sustain that belief on a massive level is not only terrifying, but deliberate. And the motive is power. The less we think, the less discerning we are, the more confused and the more cognitively dissonant we are, the easier we are to control. And from a writer's point of view, what's amazing is the way the perpetrators of this cognitive, this mass cognitive dissonance, the, mo the way they've done it is they've adopted the very technique that they're doing and used and warned their followers that that's what the other side is doing. First of all, they create sides, right? There's the American side, and then there's everybody else who's wrong. There are the people who love our country, and then there are those who disagree with uh, certain beliefs we have, therefore those are the wrong, those are the anti-Americans. So what was it, what's important with this uh, mass cognitive dissonance is to create this divide between the, the real Americans and the un-Americans. Uh, the, you know, the Trump party started, the Trumpetistas started that with the idea of rhinos. Um, Republicans in name only. So there were, as a way of infiltrating the Republican Party, what they had to do was create a schism. In other words, you know, are you a real Republican, a real American, or are you a rhino? Are you a Republican in name only? And that was a category you could put anyone who didn't follow the party line. Because, make no mistake, it is a party line. QAnon is a political organization. It's a cult, which makes it a very dangerous political organization. Its motive is power, the gathering and accumulation of power. Its motive is control. And its means is division and cognitive dissonance. If I can get you to suspect your doctor of telling the truth, that gives me power over you. And that is precisely the motive behind this movement and behind this pervasive cognitive dissonance that has occurred. I believe that this is the cause of much of the mental health issues we have currently in America, and America has a, um, an incredible amount of unhealthy mental and emotional states, more so than the other cultures I have lived in, I promise you. I'm not saying, by the way, that this is all evil America. No, because the technique, the approach, the conspiracy is global. America has been exporting this kind of divisive, uh, unhealthy, mentally, you know, socially psychotic means around the world. We have it in, in Europe. You can see it in Africa. You can even see it in Southeast Asia. So it isn't, it isn't, it may have been American born, but it's by no means an American problem anymore. And as with most things, what starts as America's problem usually becomes the world's problem. Very quickly. We are being taught to unlearn. We are being taught and trained to stop thinking. And I believe that this is a crisis. The inability to distinguish between a fact and a rumor is fundamental to the power play that is going on right now. It, is, it plays into the economic engine of the indoctrination of consumption 
Let me repeat that. It is motivated by consumer capitalism's need for us to keep consuming. When people think, they actually think about things like the planet. When we think, when we open our faculties, we can see the earth. We can see the earth from the moon without borders. We can see it as a beautiful blue globe of water. We can see ourselves on that planet, on this planet. And we have a view of our lives that is true, that, well, we can gain truth from. What happens is that we tend to buy less things the more we think. And if you've ever had an impulse buy as opposed to a planned buy, you know exactly what I mean. Your operating system, your cognition, is in a very different place at the checkout stand when it grabs a candy bar than it is when pricing a new computer or car or whatever. What you know, Our faculties come into place when we discern when we're able to use our attention to tune out the noise and focus on what we really need. How do we know what we need? Our bodies and our minds tell us. If we're listening, the more noise infiltrates our consciousness and our attention, the less we are able to discern what is good for us. And this is the crux of the power grab. Those in control, and I'm not going to name mysterious people because it's, it's, <laughs> it is uh, in many ways a, a, an unconscious conspiracy. It's, it's more of a system, a systematic shift. It's an engine, not driven by one individual, but driven by the aggregation of so many self-interests into one direction. That is why no Republican senator will vote for any Democratic agenda. And you will see this throughout the year. The Democrats who are currently in power, and yes, I did vote for the Democrats. Um, I didn't really have a choice, did you? Um, their ability to try and progress their agenda, whether you agree with it or not, will be thwarted unanimously by Republicans. They will not vote for anything, even if it benefits them, and even if they later claim credit for it. Because it's a single-minded thought. They are relinquishing their own needs, their own individual interests, for the sake of a more powerful, encompassing, power-granting, power-wielding mechanism that is personified by QAnon. I suppose I should say that we can't confuse the QAnon supporters or those who follow that, that, those lies with the orchestrators. Uh, they're not the same people. But I think um, if you do pay attention to current events, I think you can tell who the perpetrators are. There is a war on reason. And whether you like it or not, you're in this war. Much later in my life, um, uh, later than a child, uh, when I interrogated him, I demanded that he tell me, and and he did. He did wind up um, telling me a lot of stories and a lot of accounts of his personal experiences. But the most important thing he told me that I raise now 
was that at 17, he enlisted. You know, uh, six months in boot camp, I think three to six months, and then shipped out to Marseille. And then from Marseille uh, to the Ardennes, where, of course, he came face-to-face with the German, the Nazi uh, Panzer divisions. He described to me in detail the terror he felt at night with the sound of artillery hailing around him. But then he told me something interesting, because I asked him, well, how, you know, how did you cope? What did you do, Dad? You know, how, how did you do this? Uh, I, I think I was only a couple years older than he was at that time, so I was trying to connect with his subjective experience, and he told me, well, Igor, he said, um, the first thing I decided when I got off in Marseille was that I wasn't going to survive. I would not survive this war. And so everything became easier. Because I gave up, well, I'm paraphrasing, because he had given up his expectation to survive. And I think there's wisdom there. I think that clinging to an idea, an abstraction of your, even if it's your own life, in the face of adversity, can be a weakness. And my father did survive. He survived hard combat. He saw most of his friends die. And I believe that the key to his survival was his surrendering it. And just coping with what was in front of him. With what he had to do day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute. And I offer you this advice. In this war, this war on reason that we are facing, me and you, that we will survive if we deal with what is in front of us. Minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day. This is how we can maintain the integrity of our awareness, of our consciousness, of our individual memory of our history over time. And we learn the truth of our circumstance with focus, with attention, and with tuning out the lies and the noise that are intended to distract you. Every day, every minute, every moment is an opportunity for focus. It's an opportunity for you to place your attention where it belongs, in the reality of the moment you are experiencing. Not what you should buy, not how much of a fail you are, not how smelly you are, or how fat you are, or how insufficient you are, but what you have, who you are. If you're standing, you have legs. If you're praying, you have hands. And if you have thinking, if you are thinking, you have your own mind. You have an experience that cannot be forgotten. When you hear something, or read something, or are told something, that's when your critical faculties are most in demand because you have to account for what you are receiving as second hand. And that's where lies occur. Oftentimes the lies that we assimilate are really come in the back door of interpretation or opinion or point of view. And one of the weapons of cognitive dissonance is to equate all accounts as equal, as equal opinions, as just points of view. Well, rhetorically, yes, if we all exist in a perpetual debating society, 
then yes, we can entertain many different points of view. Hey, the world is flat. What an interesting way of looking at things. But if we're not in a perpetual debating society, if we actually are interested in the truth that lies behind rhetoric, then we have to rely on our own senses and our own faculties, our own powers of discernment, our own ability to be attentive as our means of distinguishing between lies and the truth. And the truth is that the vast majority of our current circumstance, our conflicts, our crises, be they racial, racial uh, cultural, environmental, are all based on constructs of untruth. The more I own, the better I am than you. Now, rationally, we know that's not, we know that's not true, but we behave as if it were. We view ourselves and our self-esteem and our comparison to others in terms of our possessions and our ability to purchase, our ability to wield power in the small arena that consumer capitalism has given us. I have 31 flavors I can choose from in a Baskin-Robbins. That's, that's my American liberty. There are 31 flavors I can choose from. I'm free. I am free to choose. Yes, we are all free to choose, and having a lot of choices is great. Until you forget that it's just the one flavor that you're going to choose. You can be in a shop with 31 flavors, but at the end of the day, you don't get to eat all the flavors unless you're a glutton, unless, <laughs> unless you're unhealthy. You choose an ice cream cone. You choose a flavor. You make one choice. You may regret that choice. You may think, next time I'm going to make a different choice. Or you may just enjoy the luxury of choice. But the luxury of choice is not the same as the freedom of choice. Because in dissonance, in cognitive dissonance, another tactic that's used is to overwhelm us with choices. That's how grocery stores work. Super, I'm sorry, supermarkets work. Supermarkets work by giving us so many, so many options that our minds aren't able to actually discern and weigh up all those options easily. So we're more likely to make the wrong choice. The wrong choice in terms of our need, but the right choice as far as the seller is concerned. The illusion of choice, or the illusion that multiplicity of choices is somehow freedom, is another lie we've been peddled. The only choice that counts is the one that you make thoughtfully, mindfully, knowing who you are and what you need. If you need a car, you need one car. Really, you don't even need a car. But if you need a car, you only need one car. The fact that you have a thousand different cars to choose from does not make that choice any easier and in fact makes that choice less an act of free will. As well as uh, my friend uh, Jair Rome Parker Wells who has supplied this exquisite background music uh, you'll hear more of him if uh, you hear more from me. Uh, my name is Igor Goldkind. I, I'm an author, I'm a poet, and a thinker. I have a new book out, uh, published by Chameleon Publishing. 
entitled Take a Deep Breath, Living with Uncertainty, in which many of the themes that I've discussed today and will be discussing are in this book. These aren't just my thoughts. These are the thoughts and observations of many people and my own observations and my own experiences. You can check it out by going to takeadeepbreath.one dot O-N-E spelt out. And you can even request a free review copy if you'd like in PDF form. You can obviously also buy the book. I know, you can buy things. It's okay. Uh, at Amazon. Take a deep breath dot one. Sorry, take a deep breath, living with uncertainty. You can find that at Amazon and in your local bookstore probably at the end of April uh, as distributed through Ingrams. Um, thank you for listening. I, I don't know if this has done anything for you, but if it has, please tell me. Please leave your comments or contact me. I'm easy to contact. You can find me on the web or contact me at my blog, igorgoldkindpoet.com. Either way, get in touch. And I'd be happy to hear back from you. Um, even if you have negative feedback, you want to call me a communist or anti-American or a rhino or whatever you want to call me, I, I don't mind. I'm, I'm here to engage. That's what I'm doing with my life. I'm engaging. And if you'd like to engage with me, you are welcome. And if you'd like to tune in again, we will be doing this type of podcast uh, once a week, hopefully on a Monday, maybe on a Tuesday, from here on in. Thank you very much, and please, pay attention. Your attention is really who you are. And thanks again to Jair Rome Parker Wells and his exquisite music which I hope uh, to bring more of to this podcast and to the audiobook of Take a Deep Breath, Living with Uncertainty. This has been The Unspoken Word with your host, Igor Goldkind, my thoughts, my speculative realisms, my poetry, and my words. And uh, that's all, folks. See you next time, or hear me next time.